1: Hello, Lauren Foster here. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast, the weekly series where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Since the dawn of time, stories have been what we're drawn to. Telling them forces us to slow down in forming our thoughts and perspectives. They invoke discipline into our narrative. More and more these days, company valuations are steeped in numbers, but it is the largest story that sticks to memory. Forging that all-important connection between numbers and the narrative was an important discovery for today's guest. I'm delighted to have Aswath Damodaran on the show. He will also be one of our featured speakers at this year's 73rd annual conference, Thriving in Today's Connected Market. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Aswath Damodaran, welcome. We live in disruptive times, and I'd love to start our conversation about the disruption dilemma with a dark side of disruption. Why does disruption make us so uncomfortable? Well,
0: there are a couple of reasons. One is as human beings, we don't like to deal with uncertainty. We hide from it, we deny it, we get paralyzed by it, we outsource it, we ask other people for advice. But the reality is uncertainty makes us uncomfortable and disruption makes us, creates uncertainty. And certainly not just in terms of the kinds of businesses that get started to disrupt, but in terms of the businesses that get disrupted. So everybody is a little on edge. And you notice this now, and this I think is why this particular face of history is different, is in the past you had disruption in one or two or three businesses. Today I can't think of too many businesses that are not being disrupted too many, you know, almost everything from medicine to essentially all the way to ride-sharing, everything's getting disrupted.
1: So why is disruption different? Isn't it just a buzzword for good old competition? Competition basically means two
0: established companies fight it out. Disruption, what's different is somebody who has nothing to lose comes in and tries to do a business differently. Competition especially, let's take brick and mortar retail. 30 years ago, competition meant you know, that you try to cut prices, but you still sold through stores. The base, you accepted the basic business. It's, it's, in effect, very similar to being a revolutionary as opposed to being somebody who wins and loses in a democracy. Revolutionaries are scary because they don't believe in the system. They're actually shaking up the system. And disruption, your people have nothing to lose, essentially saying, this system doesn't work, we're gonna try something else. And the scary thing is what they're trying might not be good either, but in the process, they can ruin the
1: way it was done in the past. So you've often said that disruption is easy, making money from disruption is hard, and you also remind us that many disruptors, especially the early ones, don't benefit from disruption. So is this what you expect today with the big unicorns?
0: Well, I, you know, it, it depends. I think that the unicorns that haven't thought about a business model yet, that have just scaled up, are in trouble. They're in trouble because when you build a big scale without thinking of business model, it's very difficult then to superimpose a business model on something that's already been established. I mean, I, Netflix is not a unicorn. It's more established, but think about how Netflix has grown. If you're a Netflix subscriber, the reason you subscribe to Netflix is they've conditioned you to seeing 10 new shows every time you turn on Netflix, which also means that they're on this cost, the, the content cost treadmill that they can't get off. They need the content to keep going up to sign up new subscribers. They need the new subscribers because that's what they're getting the market to base their valuation on. And often people say, well, why can't they, once they settle settled in, stop spending on content? The problem is the users, the subscribers they've signed up are used to seeing new shows. So if one day they wake up and they turn it on, they see no new shows, I'm not sure that they will stay on as subscribers. And now you have Disney Plus and Peacock and you know Apple Plus and Amazon Prime coming at you challenge for Netflix is going to be how do you now create a model where you can make money because it's not easy to step away from an established model, which is what you used to get all these subscribers.
1: Right. With so much uncertainty, what advice would you give investors trying to value the disruptors?
0: Be willing to be wrong and be willing to go back and revisit your valuations. Because if you get stuck on, I got the value and I'm not going to revisit it because I put a lot of work into it, You're going to dig a hole for yourself.
1: So one of your most popular books, and you've written a number of books, I guess just five on valuation alone, is Narratives and Numbers, The Value of Stories in Business. Can you tell us how you came to write that book and perhaps why stories have been driving valuations even more so than numbers in many stocks these days?
0: Well, stories have always been what human beings are drawn to, right? For a long time, we had no written word. You had you had knowledge and history passed down through stories. So as human beings, we're more naturally both attracted to stories and we tend to remember them. That's always been true. Somewhere along the way with Excel spreadsheets and models and numbers, I think in valuation, and I would argue that you know, institutions like the CFA contributed to it, we pushed those models to the front, and in, we sent a message saying the stories don't matter, you need a good Excel spreadsheet. Gotten good. I think we've lost that connection because a spreadsheet is just a set of line items, and if you just work on each line item separately, you can come up with any value you want. Stories keep you disciplined because when you change a part of a story, you got to think through the rest of the story. That's always been true, but I think we lost sight of it as we got into the power of models and the power of data. And that book was really, uh, it, it was as much a self-discovery for me because I learned how much I'd got and, and I had to teach myself how to tell stories. So that book explains what I do to force myself to tell stories in my evaluation because I'm a natural number cruncher. I want to go to an Excel spreadsheet and play with the numbers. And this forces me to slow down and provide that story to tie my numbers together.
1: So 2019 has been a big year for IPOs. Mm -hmm. And you've written a lot about it, especially on your blog, Musings and Markets. There was the WeWork fiasco, Mm -hmm. never made it to IPO. And other high-profile listings have disappointed in the aftermarket. What have investors learned from all of this?
0: I think people overestimate what people learn. I mean, I describe markets as having selective amnesia. And so after the WeWork fiasco, I heard all these stories about how people have learned not to trust VCs, how companies are not going to get punished for not having business models. I don't believe it for a second. If Airbnb has a really good IPO next year, everything will be forgotten. So learning doesn't stick in markets because you know, people very quickly forget these lessons. For the moment, I think there's a, there's a period of sobriety which has come about where people say, we have to think about business models. You saw, saw in the most recent Uber earnings report where Dara talked about, hey, we have to work on a pathway to profitability. My reaction was, what took you so long? I mean, it's you're, you're 10 years into your life, you're a $60 billion company, and you're talking about pathway to profitability now. This is a conversation we should have been having since 2015. I would like to say that now companies are going to do it, but I don't think they will if investors turn their attention away. Investors get easily distracted.
1: Does the IPO market need
0: disrupting? The process by which companies go public needs to be changed because I think that The old model was you hired an investment banker, put a syndicate together, they went out and convinced their prized investors that you're a good company. They set an offering price, usually 15% below, and then they got that bump, and so that was the old process. But that assumed that bankers brought something to the table, that they were better at pricing companies than you were, that they were better at marketing companies, that you needed them to I'm not sure that's true for at least the IPOs I saw this year, the big ones. You know, Did Uber really need a banker to screw it up as badly as it got screwed up? I mean, a, a direct listing, you let the market set the number. I mean, we've discovered bankers are not very good at pricing. They're sheep like everybody else. After all, just before the WeWork IPO imploded, Goldman Sachs told us that the pricing for WeWork was $60 to $105 billion. And Morgan Stanley said it's 48. So in a sense, it's there's an, we're increasingly getting evidence that bankers are not providing a pricing. Uh, are they providing a marketing support? I mean, it's, in the old days, when you know, the IPOs were companies that nobody had heard of, and the bankers were names that people heard of, bankers' sales pitches mattered because they got the company's profile out in the public. And investors, for better or worse, thought that bankers knew something about this process. I think both parts of that equation are broken down because, let's face it, more people know Uber than Goldman Sachs. And second, 2008, I think, has demolished any credibility bankers might have had with investors. So on those grounds, I mean, bankers bring nothing to the table. Why should you pay them 6% to screw up this process? You can screw it up yourself at 0%. (laughs) So I think the process needs to change.
1: You describe valuation as a craft Mm -hmm. and you say it's important to adapt and change your valuation approaches. So how have you remained adaptive and changed your valuation framework over time as needed?
0: I've learned to say the three most important words in valuation. I was wrong because I've discovered that the first stage in adapting and changing is you have to accept that what you're doing right now doesn't work. And I think for a lot of people, that's difficult to do because they've invested so much in a particular way of doing things that they feel that if they say it doesn't work that they've given away their competitive advantage i mean I, and i do have an adva- and i do have an advantage i don't do valuation for a living i don't do valuation consulting i don't do expert witness work thank god for that because if you do expert witness work what happens is you go in front of a court and you say this is the right way to do things already you've made it much more difficult to say I was wrong because you now are in a sense, you know, your testimony as an expert witness is in direct contrast to what you're saying. So thank God I've never had to say things that I can't say I was wrong on. And that's been a big part of learning to adapt and do things differently.
1: So in May at our annual conference in Atlanta, you'll be teaching a unique class that I think wins the prize for the best session title. Value Me You Must, A Jedi Guide to Valuation. So for our viewers and listeners, just give us a teaser. What can attendees expect to learn in your session?
0: Remember earlier we talked about valuation being a craft. I tell people everything I know about valuation, I've learned in the course of teaching valuation over the last 35 years. And I've discovered there are six or seven things that stick with me that I would take away as kind of philosophical general lessons. So what I'm gonna try to provide in that jedi guide is this is what i've learned about the craft of valuation and i've learned it the hard way because by not doing it i've been random so it's really about taking my what i've learned over 35 years of valuation and trying to present it as a series of these are seven lessons that i would take away about the process of doing valuation so it's not going to be about betas and risk premiums. And there are plenty of other sessions which talk about the details, and I've done plenty of them. This is really a session about the philosophical foundations of valuation, of how we think about valuation, why we do valuation, and how we can do it better.
1: Sounds like a must-attend session. Thank you for your time today. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts, and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.